This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I would like to thank the member for Scarborough Centre for her question. The conclusions of this survey are clear. Hate speech has no place in our society. It is time to step up against online hate. The numbers are disturbing, but they come as no surprise. Almost half of Canadians either report either experiencing or seeing violent or hateful content online. Canadian wants us to act, and that's exactly why we intend to introduce legislation. Our approach will require online platform to eliminate illegal content such as hate speech, terrorist and violent extremism, child pornography, and a non-consensual sharing of intimate images online. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Over the past year, this podcast has featured many guests engaged on issues related to internet platform liability and online content regulation. Daphne Keller, Heidi Torek, Eric Goldman, and Vivek Krishnamurthy are just some of the guests who have highlighted the policy challenges. Those issues are likely to come to the fore in the coming weeks in Canada, as Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault introduces new legislation designed to address online harms through increased regulation. There will undoubtedly be comparisons to other countries, but the Canadian legal environment, including jurisdictional limitations and the rights enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, means that simply importing another system rarely works. David Kay is a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression from 2014 until 2020. He joins me on the podcast to discuss the challenges associated with balancing regulation and preserving freedom of expression online, the policy considerations that governments should be thinking about, and the risks that arise from getting the balance wrong. David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, Michael, my pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's terrific to have you here. The The issues around freedom of expression and online regulation in, in Canada anyway are taking off and, and we see it taking place uh, with, with heightened interest, I think, in a lot of jurisdictions. And so you're a perfect person to kind of walk through some of the challenges. Now, you, the, the reason for that, of course, is that you served as the UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of, on, of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. That's always a mouthful. Yeah, total uh, mouthful. <laughs> it is for sure. From August 2014 until July 2020, so you're there for in that role for a really long time. Can you describe a little bit about that role and the kind of work that you engaged in? Yeah. So um, yeah, again, Michael, thanks for having me on the program. I so you know, special rapporteurs are there are about 50 of them. These are uh, positions that are appointed by the Human Rights Council. So it's you know, we're basically you know appointees of the central human rights body of the UN system. It's part of the General Assembly. And, you know, the, the way the special procedures is what it's called, the way special procedures is organized is basically around either country-specific uh, human rights concerns. So there's like a special rapporteur for Myanmar and Iran and North Korea. But the, the bulk of them are uh, are independent experts on thematic areas. So freedom of expression, was, was my focus. There's freedom of assembly, privacy, cultural rights, kind of a, a lengthy list. And, and what, what rapporteurs do, it's basically two kinds of things. On the one hand, uh, and just speaking from my own experience, I would monitor 
state behavior in the area of freedom of expression using the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 19 of ICCPR or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as kind of the touchstone for that kind of evaluation. Um, and I would do thematic reports to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly. And those, you know, those two different things looking specifically at government behavior and secondly, looking at general trends would basically combine and, and overlap one another pretty regularly, but they were conceptually different tasks. Okay. So, so pretty broad mandated geographically, mm-hmm. although uh, obviously focused yeah. on a particular issue. I, I'm going to assume that, that a lot of things may have changed over the course of the term, uh, but I'm yeah. guessing that few more than more so than really the public discourse around the internet and, and internet platforms. You know, if I think back to 2014, when you started, the public perception was generally pretty positive about the internet mm-hmm. and the big tech companies. But uh, as we know, yeah. uh, by now, we've seen a, a really significant shift in perspective. Can, can you talk a bit about yeah. uh, how you experienced that change and the impact that it had on promoting and protecting freedom of opinion and expression? Yeah, I mean, I think your your uh, recollection and your read of, of the change is, is mine, and I share that. You know, when I when I started, we, we're sort of at a at something of a, a pivot point because you know I started a year after the Snowden revelations, and the the Snowden revelations, although they were focused on uh, you know uh, on surveillance, they also brought to brought to the fore the question of, you know, private corporate engagement with government action, with government acts. And so, you know, early on, the discourse, at least when I started, the discourse around tech space and around internet platforms tended to focus on the pressure that governments were placing on the companies. You know, so thinking back to Yahoo in China, for example, right? You know, the idea that that governments would demand censorship of the companies or they would demand user data from the companies or whatever it might be, that that seemed, in my recall, that was, you know, tended to be the focus of, of much of the discussion. But it it moved fairly quickly to this broader question of, how the companies actually govern their own space. So even outside the shadow of government regulation and government pressure, what are the companies themselves doing either to ensure robust freedom of expression or what are they doing to control harassment, um, incitement to violence, even in the context of Myanmar, incitement to genocide, I think that if I were to to kind of at a you know high altitude look at the change, it would be that that change from a focus on government pressure to the focus on uh, you know on company governance. Yeah, no, there definitely has been an increased focus, and and now we're starting to see, of course, a lot of additional government pressure on the companies, but it's different governments yeah. from from the way it was a number of years ago. I think uh, that's know. right. I mean, that's I mean, one of the interesting things is how the um, the government, pre- we, we're, we're in a way coming full circle, right? I mean, if we started with the concern with government pressure, and then we moved a little bit towards, although we never lost that, that concern, but we moved towards the concern over uh, corporate governance, we're now sort of um, 
moving back a little bit to the question of government pressure that's not on individual speech in the same way that it might have been in the past, but government pressure on the companies in order to better govern their space. And that's, I mean, I think that is the the nature of the regulatory debate right now worldwide. I think that's true. I mean, to, to what extent are you seeing it within those debates? The where Where is the freedom of expression aspect to that discussion? You know, I can tell you mm. that from a Canadian perspective, we sometimes get the sense that the the responsible minister and the government as a whole has become so focused on on battling with the companies and, and saying you've got to do a better job governing your platforms that the the impact yeah. or the implications for freedom of expression are, are sometimes taking a back seat as part of the, uh, those considerations. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And that's true everywhere. I mean, the the focus and I, and I understand it, you know, um, the focus on harms is coming from a place where I think many governments believe they have, you know, they have responsibility to protect individuals, to protect communities, to protect democratic processes, whatever it might be. The, the problem, and this is a problem in, you know, maybe mostly in democratic societies, because in, you know, in the autocratic authoritarian world, they don't, you know, they're not kind of worrying as much about, you know, whether whether the language is overbroad or, or something like that. But in democratic society, I think there's this real uh, kind of clash uh, of of interests, you know, on the one hand, dealing with the harms. On the other hand, you know, the, the, the you know, resistance to definitions that are so broadly written that they might put excessive discretion in the hands of government to clamp down on on legitimate speech. And I think that's that's just been a very hard conversation to sustain with with governments and and with communities over time across you know North America, Europe, other democratic spaces. Yeah, no, I think we're seeing that play out in a lot of places. Now your book Speech Police the Global Struggle to Govern the Internet I think touches on on some of the things that you've just mentioned and, and some mm-hmm. of those tensions. You identified in it some of the guideposts you thought for for navigating some of those kinds of tensions. You know, what do you think countries should be thinking about as they, on the one hand, as you say, try to address the harms, try to ensure that their citizens are adequately protected, but at the same time, not lose sight of some of the fundamental freedoms that are so essential as well. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that there's, I mean, this, this regulatory debate and and, I mean, that's, that's happening. Regulation is going to happen. I'm, I'm kind of probably like you concerned that that regulate that regulatory move uh, will not take into account uh, speech values a- as much as they should. But I do think there are some kind of basic uh, rules that that could guide, let's say, smart regulation. I mean, one is, um, I think one of the kind of the underlying problems here is the lack of transparency into what the companies themselves are actually doing. You know, how do they adopt rules? What what is what is the nature of those rules? How do they apply those rules? Because you know, so often when when governments or the public is concerned about platform governance, it tends to focus around the sense of either inconsistent application or 
you know, sort of the the application or enforcement of rules only when, you know, there's public pressure and so forth. And so I think there's real space for, for regulation to at least at the outset to focus on rules of transparency and, and really giving, giving access to the public to know what's happening. Also, something that I think um, scholars have had a real hard time with, uh, which is getting access to, uh, you know, to the platform, to their APIs, to all sorts of you know, looking under the hood so that we can actually know what's happening. To, to my mind, that's, that's kind of a first level approach that you know, other things can follow from it, but but we we really do need to instead of thinking only about breaking them up, and the competition discussion is an interesting one that's related. We should also be thinking about about kind of breaking them open so we can actually see what they're doing. So transparency is as step one, and uh, I think yeah. you're seeing a lot of momentum around that. You've I know yeah. talked about a human rights-centered approach. Is mm-hmm. that where we start moving into step two? What are some of the other kinds of things that you that you think we ought to be thinking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can imagine. So I'm really wary, and this this probably comes from just my, um, you know, I, I was you know educated in a First Amendment environment. I I believe in the First Amendment. Um, and I and I'm very wary of you know of government basically saying you know saying to anybody but certainly saying to the to the platforms that their rules need to um, be X Y or Z you know that they should um, I'm wary of government rules that are not viewpoint neutral and um, and so what what I do think government can say. Um, as part of the regulation is kind of, you know, leading them to identify what are the sources for their decisions. So where should they look to make their decisions? I mean, some of that should should really be, you know, terms of service and the kind of, let's say, branding that any of the companies want to have. I mean, they they also have, you know, free association and free speech rights themselves. What kind of platform do they want to design for for their users, but I do think that they can provide some kind of guardrails around that. And they could say, for example, um, you know, impose some requirements on on the company so that they do due diligence into the impact that the platforms have on the rights of their users and the rights of the public. Um, they could do they could you know basically say we want you to guide your uh, you know your your uh, your governance of your platform according to human rights standards given the you know the scope of your role in our societies i mean i do think there are steps that that can come from government that are short of telling the companies they have to you know keep up or take down certain content but give them kind of the framework for how they make those decisions Okay. Uh, in your mind, this is the question I, I get asked a lot. I might as well ask it of you as well. Uh, is is anyone doing it right or doing it really well? Particularly, I suppose, from a government-oriented yeah. perspective, right now. Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, I we're we're in such a moment of flux that it's hard to identify um, really uh, good practice right now. You know, I I actually think. That the model that tends to, like, if we, you know, taking a step back and looking at things from a pretty high altitude, I think the European 
and North American approach of, you know, very light regulation generally, although we could talk specifics as well, because it's not light regulation everywhere, but the general approach of allowing the companies to make these decisions according to their own standards has has worked fairly well, I think. I mean, it's, it's worked from the perspective of innovation. It's worked from the perspective of you know, vastly increasing the the kind of the the space for access to information and for the imparting of information. You know, freedom of expression as both you know the recipient and the imparter, and so the you know the speaker and the audience. So I think there's been, I, you know, you don't I don't think want to throw that away as we think about the regulatory moves going forward. So you know, at at a certain level, I would say. You know the regulation that we've had so far isn't so bad. It's it's that what we have seen over the last several years is just you know abuse of the platforms, harassment on the platforms that the platforms themselves haven't been able to deal with, and we need to find the mechanisms that deal with those those harms in a way that doesn't overstate the harms and and also over and, and use language that provides you know either so much authority to government or so much uncertainty for platforms that they take down a lot of perfectly legitimate content. So I, I know I didn't exactly answer your question. Maybe maybe you can answer it for me and tell me how you answer. But I you know I find it to be we're in such a moment that it's hard to say there's a there's a really there's a good or even perfect practice. Um, you know, considering the kind of, uh, you know, regulatory initiatives that we see out there right now. Yeah, no, it's a question I struggle with as well. It's one reason why I wanted to see if perhaps someone else had a better answer. I don't uh, have brief talking <laughs> points that you could just walk away with, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's 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 not an easy one because uh, these are really challenging issues. And, and I think you're right. I think we're seeing a lot of the different policy considerations in flux. I mean, a, a good example, actually, of a policy that's in flux that, that some would like to see changed, but uh, at least from my perspective, has generally worked well, although it would benefit from some tweaking, is uh, CPA Section 230 sub C, the, the safe mm-hmm. harbor. Uh, yeah. Obviously, an enormous amount of pressure uh, to, to see some change on that issue. We're having some of the discussions in Canada as well around it, and it mm-hmm. was included in the trade agreement with the United States. What's your mm-hmm. take on, on on the safe harbor approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I that is one area that I would say is, is a positive. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, Section 230, as, as much as it, I think in, in the U.S., and I know you've watched this debate and participated in this debate, um, you know, it's so highly politicized that, you know, the safe harbor ap- approach it has kind of been wrapped up in the overall sense that, the you know, the platforms are the bad guys. The platforms are seeking to undermine conservative speech um, or undermine, you know, difficult voices or they're part of cancel culture. And I think that, you know, even those voices calling for that, if they actually kind of sat down with, you know, with experts and walk through what it is they're trying to achieve. Uh, my guess is they would find, I mean, as you said, I mean, that that there's there's real value and there has been real value in, you know, in the safe harbor and, you know, that general approach for sure. I think, you know, if I could say just one, one inter- there, going back to your question about 
you know, good practices out there because, because there is actually, there's one example that I've, I've used with people that, um, is, is one that, that didn't actually, uh, uh, come to fruition, let's say. And that is in, in France, they, they created this panel, basically a, um, it's like a commission to study, uh, regulation of, of online space. And they came up with this, basically a, uh, a multi-stakeholder framework for addressing issues of content online. And it was actually a pretty rich uh, proposal that the government didn't take up, even though the government had commissioned this body to do this, uh, this uh, you know, research and, 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 and make proposals. But, that, but I think there are proposals out there and that even democratic governments that see the harms, but also want to protect freedom of expression. You know, they're they're out there. There are, uh, you know, proposals and models. They they just need to be taken up. Yeah. No. You, you speaking of uh, cancel culture and the role of the platforms. Um, yeah. You know, I, nothing. I don't think got as much attention around this issue earlier this year than the deplatforming issue, especially with respect to. Uh, President Donald Trump, former yeah. President Donald Trump, the uh, former guy. Yeah, uh, your which what are, what are what were your views uh, really on how the companies and it across the broad spectrum from everything, of course, to Twitter and Facebook to even Shopify and others that that all took steps in this regard. What was your view on how the companies handled that? Yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the day, they I think I mean, in my view, they did the right thing, um, but it was very messy getting there. And, you know, they seem to be treating the kind of the online, you know, the disinformation. And in Trump's case, it was, you know, disinformation that was very much linked to incitement. And, and, and you know, we could have, you know, kind of a, a technical legal discussion over incitement and, and what it means. I, you know, I think, I think that the platforms were... First of all, they were probably seeing a lot more than we saw. Certainly, they saw, for example, interactions between Trump's account and, let's say, QAnon accounts or others, and certainly on the right, that were, you know, seeking to to foment a kind of environment that's ripe for for incitement, that's ripe for uh, for violence. And, you know, the the companies across the board, but certainly the biggest companies. They started by giving warnings and by, you know, placing labels on different kinds of content. But but I do think that there there was a, a kind of a broader sense of context that it took them a long time to figure out um, that they weren't necessarily. Although again, we don't know because they're so opaque. But they they weren't really focused on taking steps. To deal with the kind of context that that emerged, both the context after, you know, the elections in November in the United States, and the context as as we were getting closer to to January sixth, when it became clear, I mean, certainly in the weeks leading up to it, it became clear that Trump was expecting and inviting violent forces to Washington to try to stop. You know the the count of electro of electoral college ballots. So, I mean, I, I guess my my overall view is the platforms took too long. 
they ended up getting to the right place uh, in dealing with a real, real kind of harm. And, and that they need, this is one of the reasons why they need to be more transparent so that people can actually uh, evaluate both the steps that they take and the reasons why they take them. I think it's a, I think it's a great point. The transparency would make a huge difference uh, in terms of at least the ability to engage in some sort of analysis or discussion as to uh, what they what they'd done and whether or not uh, it was the right thing. You know, I, I recently had a had my colleague Vivek Krishnamurthy on the podcast, uh-huh. and and yeah. Vivek was talking about one of his concerns with what we see taking place from a number of democratic countries as they move forward with the kind of regulation that we've been talking about, and his concern that that can often serve as a model for countries that we might see as as less democratic, where they'll yeah. they'll say, well, if Canada's doing it or France is doing it, the United States is doing it, then why shouldn't we we be doing the same kinds of things? Um, yeah, I'm wondering in, in your in your experience as you were taking that really global perspective, did you see that that play out where some of the less democratic countries are, are able to effectively to point to approaches where freedom of expression may take a, a back seat in certain respects, and they say, well, listen, if those countries are doing it, there isn't any reason that we shouldn't feel free to do so as well. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely is happening. I mean, there's there's been some good re- research that shows how, uh, you know, Germany's Network Enforcement Act, the NetsDG, has been kind of cut and pasted, you know, into authoritarian uh, or, you know, not even just authoritarian, but into environments where freedom of expression is not valued uh, at the same level. So I, I definitely see that point. I mean, we also saw that in the context of the development of, you know, terrorist content regulations in Europe or or even the rhetoric around terrorist content, because, you know, since at least 2014, 2015, particularly after um, the Charlie Hebdo uh, killings in Paris at the beginning of, of 2015, you know, we saw the rhetoric in Europe, to a certain extent in the United States, but especially in Europe, um, moving towards, you know, we need to do everything we can to shut down uh, terrorist content and also, you know, what they called extremist content. And that, you know, that's exactly the language that authoritarians love to hear because at the same time that Europeans were talking in those terms, you know, Turkey was redefining journalism as terrorism. Egypt was, you know, um, prosecuting journalists for quote unquote terrorism or extremism. And, and you know, this, this kind of approach that was really deeply repressive, you know, was, was happening all over the place. You know, those countries would probably have found those tools anyway, but the, you know, the, the democratic countries, you know, in a way gave them a little bit of fodder, at least gave them a talking point that, you know, conceivably in the, in the kind of what about what aboutism of the day they could use, you know, to throw back at, at some of those countries when those countries came to criticize them. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that those examples are, are are really are important, particularly for I think countries in Canada would be one of them that likes to see itself as playing a model for countries around the world and to recognize that that cuts both ways, depending on some mm-hmm. of the policy choices that get made. Now, yeah. now we, I, Before you get to a question, I just, there's yeah. one other thing, because I, I think that your work has, has also touched on this in, in a big respect. And it's, it's an intersection 
between like the content and the the sense of urgency that governments often uh, impose to say you need to take this down quickly and and this particularly like we saw this especially in actually in an area that shouldn't be quite as emotive you know in copyright <laughs> the copyright directive in Europe where you know the pressure in Europe is to take down content as quickly as possible like 24 hours 48 hours and and that part of it which isn't necessarily content specific that actually is something that we're seeing borrowed by authoritarians which is really pushing the companies to take down a lot more content than they should be you know it's take, taking down either you know content that isn't or shouldn't be copyright protected or content that is you know journalism it has nothing to do with terrorism and um and that kind of that kind of pressure i think is you know it's not content specific but it's it's pretty real i think for the companies and then ultimately for individuals who are subject to those kinds of uh those kinds of pressures yeah, I'm so glad you raised that. Just earlier this week, we had a report here in Canada where the government is moving forward or plans to move forward with new regulation of internet speech, social media companies and the like, and precisely the issue you raise about the, the need for speed when it comes to content removal is one of the yeah. things that's been cited. And the issues around due process, getting it right, not not removing more than is necessary or, or lawful speech, kind of, again, it seems... If your prioritization is get this down immediately or face liability, you're going to make mistakes along the way. And that's going to have totally. quite clear implications for freedom of expression. Yeah, totally. I mean, what it really is moving the companies to do is to develop basically algorithmic tools to take down content. And those, you know, those have a pretty significant uh, fail rate um, in terms of taking down legitimate content. And I guess a success rate in taking down <laughs> legitimate content content. And that's I, I just think the pressure to this kind of, you know, we talk about them as, as upload filters. I mean, this this pressure to filter content so fast is um is likely not to work out well for for the public and its right to enjoy freedom of expression over time. I and mean, that's a it's a pretty big concern that I have. I mean it's it in, in part it's because the companies are so huge. I mean, they they need algorithmic tools to at least sift through and know what they need to be looking at. But um, but they're so far from the places where they're actually governing, you know, expressive space that you know the further you are from the core, you know, like democratic large markets, the more they're going to, I think, unfortunately, sacrifice robust freedom of expression to, you know, to protect their own business interests in those markets. Yeah, no, I think the risks are very real. Uh, I, let me close close with this. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the website blocking side. You just mentioned upload filtering. There's, of course, the filtering or the blocking going the other way. Uh, you submitted what I thought was a really essential submission during a Canadian consultation on the issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And there are some indications that the issue will resurface, potentially, certainly in copyright and, and even yeah. potentially, I think, with respect to some of the kinds of speech that, that we're talking about, where the platforms may be asked to remove content quickly. And if it's platforms that fall outside the jurisdiction, one wonders whether or not the government will start saying, well, maybe we should engage in site blocking to do that. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, you know your experience around the site blocking issue around the world and some of the risks that it raises? 
Yeah, I mean, so website blocking has become a, a kind of a go-to tool for for governments around the world. I mean, even you know, ostensibly democratic governments like you know India, for the last several years has really quite liberally <laughs> used the tool of blocking websites, and and it's I so. I mean, two different ways of thinking about it, I think. You know, one is website blocking and filtering, you know, often involve, you know, government directives to telecommunications companies. So, you know, it's a different space than, you know, ordering Facebook to take down a page because, you know, Facebook conceivably could say no. And, you know, the government might not have too much of an option in terms of what to do with that with Facebook. I mean, they could shut down the platform altogether in their country, but, you know, that's not going to be a very popular move in most places. But with the telcos, they can, they have, you know, licensing arrangements. They have a lot of law that gives the government real discretion over, and this is true for most countries, real discretion over what they can tell those those companies, ISPs, telecommunications companies, tell them what to do. And so certainly in democratic countries, I think that argues for really clear rules around, you know, what what are the constraints on government to make orders to filter content? And, you know, too often those orders are disproportionate you know, it might be a concern with one particular set of of content or posts or something, but the order goes to do, to take down an entire site or to filter an entire site. We just need to make sure that, you know, in places like Canada, the United States, in European countries, other, you know, democratic countries with strong rule of law, that, you know, when they're adopting law around these issues or adopting regulatory measures, they they really put the onus on government to demonstrate the necessity and proportionality of their action and provide room for you know appeal and due process and I, i'm concerned that particularly in combination with that timeliness issue that they're not always uh, moving in that direction yeah, well, David, it's uh, this is a difficult conversation. It's a great conversation, but a difficult one just to see how many hotspots, in a sense, uh, across the policy spectrum there are right now. And there's no question, I think people would agree, that uh, there there is a need for regulation to adapt to the current environment. But uh, doing so without learning the lessons about what it means for some of our other fundamental freedoms, you know, raises, I think, so, some really tr- troubling potential outcomes of where we might be headed. Yeah, I could not agree more. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for for highlighting these issues and for joining me on the podcast. Yeah. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.